All right. This is the What is Happening in Tabletop RPGs panel. Thank you all for coming. But ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome to the stage Luke Peterschmidt. Luke is uh, a game designer I've been working with for about 20 years. He's worked on all kinds of games, tabletop and uh, uh, tabletop hobby games and tabletop mass market games. And you may know him best as the guy who is the uh, Master Luke character behind the Spin Masters hit Bakugan. And I also have Shane DeFries joining us. Shane. Shane is a professional vampire. Shane is uh, now working at Obsidian Studios, the guys who made Order of the Stick and uh, uh, are making... Uh, sorry. Stick of Truth. I bought that. And the, uh, and the Project of Eternity game. And Pillars of Eternity. Pillars of Eternity. Thank you very much. Uh, and Shane uh, also kickstarted the, um, kick the, uh, the live-action role-playing uh, vampire product that was on Kickstarter last year. Paul? Uh, Mind's Eye Theater. Mind's Eye Theater. That's great. All right. All right. I also have Derek Lloyd joining us today. Derek is. Uh, Derek has a fan club. Derek owns a successful retail store. And you guys are here on the floor, right? You have a booth downstairs? Yeah, we have, uh, we have a booth down in the tabletop hall, and we have uh, two stores, Abington and Blaine. Fantastic. So, purveyor of fine hobby gaming products. And I've got Luke Crane joining us. <laughs> Luke is the mastermind behind the Burning Wheel role-playing game, which was used as the engine in the Mouse Guard role-playing game, which won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game of the Year in the same year that Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition was released. Luke is also the category manager? Uh, I'm the community manager. Community manager at Kickstarter for all tabletop games? All games. All games. So, lots of Kickstarter insights from Luke. Uh, and I've also got Matt McElroy on my right. Matt works with uh, DriveThruRPG, who uh, have a great website where you can buy both uh, PDFs and uh, physical products for all types of role-playing games and lots of other products as well. Uh, and he's also associated with Onyx Path, who have been doing a bunch of Kickstarters for the World of Darkness properties. Yeah. And last but certainly not least, Mike Merles, joining us today. Actually, Wizards of the Coast. I am senior manager. Senior manager, uh, working on Dungeons and Dragons next. And uh, I was just joking with Luke Crane that the fact that Wizards of the Coast allowed a Wizards of the Coast employee to be on a panel with me <laughs> means that hell is probably frozen over. <laughs> very, very pleased that Mike was able to join us today. Okay, uh, and then there's me. I'm Ryan Dancy. I'm I've been called the most dangerous man in gaming. Uh, I was the vice president for tabletop role-playing games and the brand manager for Dungeons and Dragons. I was responsible for releasing the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, and I authored the Open Gaming License. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm currently the CEO of a company called Goblinworks, and we're building a next-generation fantasy sandbox MMO, licensing the Pathfinder uh, intellectual property from Pizer. Okay, so here's how the panel is going to go today. We're going to begin by reviewing the history of tabletop role-playing games that got us to the present. And then we've got a variety of topics about the current situation with tabletop RPGs that we're all going to discuss as a panel. Uh, and at the end, we'll have some time for your questions, hopefully. So uh, I'm now going to give you four decades of history of tabletop RPGs in 10 minutes. You said five. In the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning, in the 1970s there was an explosion of role-playing game products. After the uh, chainmail 
uh, white box Dungeons and Dragons product was released, a lot of other publishers and game designers thought, holy crap, that's a fantastic idea. I want to get in on some of that. Uh, and one of the things that I want to talk about in this panel is the idea that some of these games have lasted over all four of the decades of the history of tabletop RPGs. Some of the games that were born in the very earliest parts of the hobby are still with us today. Um, uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was uh, a revolutionary product kind of set the template. Um, there were some products that came before that followed some of what TSR had done with the earlier D&D white box folio books, but after uh, AD&D shipped, uh, the industry as a whole kind of looked at that and said, okay, this is how we do games. Like, we may not all be able to do hardbacks, but uh, and we may not all be able to do three books, a player's handbook, a dungeon master's guide, and a monster manual, but we can do these kind of large format, 200 plus page, very rich, very crunchy books. Um, some will come in boxes and some will just be books. Uh, and, and that was kind of the, the birth of the hobby. There were a bunch of companies that were founded at that time. Uh, a bunch of the people who worked in those companies went on to long careers in, in tabletop RPGs. Some of them actually uh, migrated out of tabletop RPGs and into video games. Uh, okay, so then we get to the 1980s. And after the 70s, when everybody kind of experimented with kind of learning how to be a publisher, in the 80s they all experimented with learning how to make really interesting worlds. And now we're into an area where there are definitely games that you're gonna see uh, appear throughout the rest of this presentation. Um, the 80s was also a time when people were experimenting with things like generic rules, so you could have one rule set that you could use to play with a lot of different kinds of games. Uh, Rollmaster was one of those things, GURPS was one of those things. Um, and uh, you've got these kind of second generation games. So Mega Traveler was kind of the evolution of Traveler from the early 1970s. Um, the other thing about the 1980s that I would like to mention is that in 1984, a thing happened. And the thing was the Apple Macintosh. And the thing that the Apple Macintosh did was it brought in desktop publishing. So before 1984, you have to remember that all those books were basically laid out like by hand with linotype. It was crazy. Um, you know, you, you were proofing these sheets of paper that were produced by uh, you know uh, little strips of text that were cut out with exacto knives and pasted in place. It was really, really, really hard. But after desktop publishing came on the scene, uh, the ability to do very good graphic design was in the hands of the masses and everybody could do it. So we started to see this real evolution in the quality of the presentation of the games that are being produced. And, and the quality evolved you know, really, really rapidly. Um, I'd like to point out uh, Ars Magica. It's kind of a, a important uh, watershed product. The guys who made uh, Ars Magica went on to found White Wolf. That was a pretty big deal. And you know, Champions, uh, which is on here, um, you know, the, the cover looks, uh, like a beginning RPG product cover probably looks like. You know, Champions uh, is still with us today. You'll see the credit there. Uh, you know, it's like Steve uh, Peterson and, and, and George McDonald. I mean, these are guys who created a, a game system that has lasted, you know, for 30 years. It's really impressive. Okay, so at the end of the 1980s, TSR released the second edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And this was a really, really, really big deal for the industry for a bunch of reasons. The first reason is, is that it was the first major transition that the flagship product in the industry was going to undergo. So Dungeons & Dragons was the biggest role-playing game in the world, and it was the best-selling game in the market for all those years. And then TSR decided, well, we have to make a change. And they introduced, at the same time they introduced the second edition of Dungeons & Dragons, the uh, PHBR series, the player's reference books. So there was like the complete fighter's book, and the complete wizard's book, and the complete priest book. So that was kind of the birth of the splat book. Right? Up to that point, most of the products that people sold were sold to game masters, to dungeon masters. But second edition had a whole product line that was designed to be sold to players as well. 
And that idea that you could sell products to players has pretty massive trickle-down effects, as we're going to see in a couple of slides. So uh, the first thing that TSR did after they did second edition was they started to create campaign settings. They had this massive number of campaign settings, most of which came in a box. And throughout the 1990s, uh, they would release a, a, a campaign setting roughly every year. Some, some years they did two. And in fact, most of these actually, campaign settings actually had a second edition. They went through a two or three year cycle and then uh, TSR did them again. Uh, and each of these campaign settings had source books and adventures, and sometimes they had even other spin-off products. They had card products and binders of stuff, and it was immense. It was an incredibly large fractal space for people who wanted to play uh, Dungeons & Dragons. If you, if you came to D&D and you said, I'm a D&D player, it was really hard to say what that meant. If you said, I, have a, I play in a campaign set of the Forgotten Realms, that helped kind of narrow down your interests. But um, as the 90s went on, the D&D market got more and more and more fractured. People began, began, began to associate themselves more with the campaign settings than with the core uh, Dungeons & Dragons brand itself. So White Wolf comes on the scene in 1991 in a big way with the first release of the Vampire game. And Vampire is notable for a couple of reasons. It's notable for the idea that you're going to play the monsters. So implicitly saying it's okay to be the villain, uh, that evil is a meaningful, dramatic choice and that people on the tabletop should explore that. And it also encapsulated this idea of storytelling, like the name of the game system inside Vampire is the storytelling, the storyteller system. Clearly, White Wolf was saying there's something about story that's as important as role playing. And that lays down another the lasting, long-term aspect of what happens in the history of tabletop RPGs. So White Wolf is like the master of this flat book business. They have a book for every clan. They had multiple books for some clans. They had, uh, they had campaign-based things for different cities. Uh, they eventually end up creating a bunch of different games. There's a whole universe called the World of Darkness that evolves, where they create a game line with all the associated flat books and all the uh, city-based stuff for you know six or seven different types of monster or types of protagonist. So you've got TSR producing these campaign settings and the flat books, a huge fractal space for D&D. You've got White Wolf producing all this World of Darkness stuff. It's a huge fractal space for all the White Wolf stuff. And if you walk into a retail store in you know 1994, you're going to see a wall of products. There could be several hundred. RPG products from a handful of companies. GURPS has got you know a hundred source books that are available. Um, Palladium is doing a, a, a Rifts product you know every six months or so. The amount of content that was available in those retail stores was just enormous. Uh, at the same time that um, that the kind of the big companies in gaming are proliferating and producing this huge mass amount of content a bunch of smaller companies come along behind them and jump on that bandwagon. So you've got, you've got uh, FASA uh, uh, kind of diversifying, diversifying out of the Battletech world and doing more role-playing stuff like Shadowrun and Earthdawn. Uh, TSR actually tried to create a whole new role-playing game system to stand alongside of D&D called Alternity. Uh, my friend Shane Hensley at Pinnacle does a game called Deadlands, which is, uh, sorry, uh, a game called, um, uh, yeah, Deadlands, which is uh, a fantasy uh, horror western with zombies. Uh, and then I worked on a game called Legend of the Five Rings, which began life as a trading card game, and it morphed into a role-playing game, and it got its own plethora of source books and, and background material. Okay, so it's a time in the industry when a huge amount of stuff is being produced, a massive amount of content is being generated. Customers are just being 
overwhelmed with choice and with things they could be buying for these systems. And frankly, in the effort to produce this mass amount of content, the quality of what a lot of that stuff that got produced started to go down as well. There were only so many good authors and illustrators and editors to go around, and they were being sliced pretty thin. Um, and then in 1993, Wizards of the Coast released Magic Gathering and creates the trading card game category, which explodes in size and becomes this massive, huge success. A lot of people think that trading card games and role-playing games are competitive products, that as trading card games got more successful, role-playing games became less successful or had a problem. And there's some truth to that. There's some amount of overlap between trading card games and, and uh, role-playing game players. But uh, research that we did at Wizards of the Coast in the late 90s seemed to suggest that the overlap was actually relatively small. I went to work at Wizards in 1997 after we helped broker the deal for Wizards to buy TSR. And one of the things that I found out when I got there that I was really interested to hear was that Wizards of the Coast was not the biggest company in hobby game, which I had assumed that it was. In 1996, TSR was passed to become, uh, by a new company, to become the largest company in hobby gaming. And the company that passed them was Games Workshop. So at the same time that the trading card game business was becoming this huge, giant, growing thing, the miniatures business being driven by Games Workshop was also becoming a huge, giant, driven thing. So it's not as easy as you might think to say trading card games got big and role-playing games had a problem. Trading card games got big and miniatures games got big and role-playing games had a problem. And sure enough, uh, by the middle of the 1990s, we have... Where's my giant smoking crater? There it is. Uh, we had a giant smoking crater. <laughs> and for any of you who lived through that giant smoking crater, you'll know that it was giant and smoking, and it was a crater. Uh, Luke and I were at, uh, Luke Peterschmidt and I were at uh, Gamma, the Game Manufacturers Association trade show in 1997, when a number of uh, industry luminaries who will not be named walked the show floor wearing black armbands to commemorate the death of the gaming industry. So it was pretty brutal. Um, and one of the outputs of that <laughs> collapse was that in 1997, uh, Wizards of the Coast acquired TSR. And the two largest category uh, 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 manufacturers merged into one company. So we had trading card games and role-playing games all under one roof for the first time. Uh, and as you can imagine, it was a pretty big deal to anybody who was there at the time. So it took a couple of years to figure out what Wizards wanted to do with the business that it acquired from TSR. And the business was in pretty sad shape by the time Wizards got it. Uh, and uh, Vince Calori, who is the, the EVP, the Executive Vice President of Wizards of the Coast, essentially Peter Atkinson's CEO, uh, delegated a lot of the operational responsibility of the company to, to Vince. Uh, Vince pulled me into a meeting and said, uh, Dancy, um, this is your dirty diaper. You have to figure out what's wrong with this business that you convinced us to buy and then fix it. So our solution to that problem was to do the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, third edition of D&D had begun work at TSR as a side project alongside of Alternity. And when Wizards took the business over, Peter and Lisa Stevens flew out to Lake Geneva and it was one of the first things that they did was sit down with the designers and ask what their plans were for third edition. Um, and they had some plans, but the plans were not really well formed and it wasn't very strategic. TSR didn't share a lot of data with its designers. A lot of the people who worked at TSR were kind of working in the dark. So um, when the business got relocated to Renton, uh, close to Seattle, the third edition team was kind of rebooted and a new group of core designers was formed, uh, Skip, uh, Monty, and Jonathan, um, to, to build third edition. And uh, we were fortunate enough to, um, to engage in a, a really great process with a lot of open 
uh, feedback from the fans and a lot of playtesting and a lot of good market research about what people really wanted out of D&D. And in 2000, we released third edition, uh, and it did really well. Um, the D&D the business prior to third edition was barely breaking even, and it was losing money in some quarters. And after third edition, it, it became profitable, and, and it remains profitable to this day. Uh, okay, so along with third edition, we had this thing called the D20 system. Uh, the idea was that uh, we were going to put this little bug on all the third edition products that said they were part of the D20 system, and then we would license third-party publishers the right to use that same little bug, this little symbol, this D20 logo, on their products. So if you went into a retail store and you were buying uh, a, a new game product and you saw that little D20 logo, you would have the idea that there was some relationship between whatever that D20 thing was and the third edition of D&D. And that created this, uh, this big explosion of new product. A lot of publishers got started. Uh, Wizards actually did a bunch of its own D20 product. It licensed Star Wars from Lucasfilm. Um, it did a Call of Cthulhu game. It did a Wheel of Time game. Um, but it also created this big explosion of new publishers. So after the big smoking trader, uh, a lot of the companies that had existed before the smoking trader had died or had downsized or had gotten out of RPGs. And the D20 system kind of reinvigorated that market and brought in uh, new publishers, new people who wanted to take a risk and try and learn how to become an RPG publisher. Uh, one of the great things about D20 is that people did all kinds of stuff with it. So it wasn't just fantasy games. This is just a really small sampling of stuff. Uh, Midnight is a game that uh, takes the basic idea that it's an RPG set in a world where Sauron wins the War of the Ring. Uh, Blue Rose is kind of a romantic uh, RPG. It focuses on interpersonal relationships. Uh, EverQuest was a license from the EverQuest uh, MMO RPG. Spycraft is a high-tech James Bond, top secret kind of thing. Uh, and Silver Age Sentinels is uh, classic superheroes from the, uh, from the 60s and the 70s. So people tried all kind of cool stuff with, with D20. Uh, in the middle of the D20 thing, there was a, another really interesting evolution that happened. It's a guy named Ron Edwards who created this game called Sorcerer. And Ron started from the, uh, from the basic proposition if White Wolf says that storytelling is so important that they're going to name their whole game system after it, the storyteller system, um, shouldn't these games be telling more stories? Shouldn't there be more of a focus on, focus on storytelling? So Ron created a website called The Forge, and he encouraged small publishers to join him on The Forge and debate and discuss how to make role-playing games work better, uh, how to address problems that people in RPG design kind of always had known were around, and to talk about what makes a good RPG and a bad RPG and to try and come up with a theory that could explain the kinds of stuff that goes on inside of RPGs. Um, and from, the, from the, uh, the birth of Sorcerer and the kind of story games business, we got this amazing uh, expression of creativity. So the, a lot of the D20 stuff, they replicated games that had been in the hobby gaming role-playing segment for a long time. Spies, fantasy, science fiction, superheroes. This kind of story gaming independent publishing stuff, they went everywhere. They did all kind of crazy stuff. Uh, so uh, My Life with Master is a game about uh, playing Igor, right, and, and Dr. Frankenstein is your boss. And it's really an allegory for living with depression. Um, Dogs in the Vineyard is a game about being enforcers for the prototypical Mormon church uh, in the 1800s in Utah. Uh, Fiasco is a game about creating a, game, uh, creating a story that's like a Coen Brothers movie, like Fargo. Um, uh, Primetime Adventures is about creating a uh, uh, like a 1950s, 1960s sitcom television experience. So, I mean, these are these are the kind of uh, storytelling uh, uh, games and, and 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 categories that just didn't exist prior to this movement in inside hobby RPGs. So, this was awesome. It, it created this whole new space for interesting design. And a lot of the people who did that work 
uh, have gone on to do some really creative and interesting things later. So it, it only, not only was it a birth of, of creativity, it was also the start for a lot of people's careers. Uh, 2005, okay, World of Warcraft comes out. There's this thing called MMOs. Uh, it's really big. Um, it's a little bit uh, disingenuous to say that um, World of Warcraft is the first MMO, but it's probably realistic to say World of Warcraft is the MMO that kind of changed the business from uh, a curiosity or a niche category into a world-changing epic you know, struggle for dominance like it is today. Uh, so uh, the first kind of wildly available MMO, commercial MMO, is Ultima Online. There are a few things that predated it, like Meridian 59, but Ultima Online was kind of the first game that really got people's attention. It had about, at its height, about 200,000 uh, paying subscribers. And then EverQuest came behind it, and EverQuest was uh, more successful. It had, depending on how you slice the numbers, between 450 between 400 and 450,000 uh, subscribers. Um, World of Warcraft was an order of magnitude bigger than that. In four years, World of Warcraft generated five million players. Uh, so yeah, that hurt. Um, there, there's, uh, there's some data, it, it's, it's not widely available, and most of it's not public, that shows that there is a pretty strong correlation between the increase in MMO play, especially World of Warcraft play, and some really negative effects on the tabletop RPG business. Um, there's a huge overlap. Uh, we did a study at CCP, and we found that 80% of the people who played EVE Online had played a tabletop RPG in the past, and only 20% of them were still playing when they were playing EVE Online. Now, I'm not at all saying that they quit playing uh, role-playing games, tabletop RPGs, to play MMOs. I'm just saying that there, there was a huge amount of people who were tabletop RPG players who were exposed to and played MMOs a as a result. Um, so this kind of marks, I, I would say, like the second great smoking crater after this happened, we saw a lot of market disruption. A lot of small tabletop hobby and publishing companies went out of business. Uh, there was some consolidation. Um, people downsized, so they might have had a staff of 10 people, and they let everybody go, and it was just one guy who kind of kept the business running by himself. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a tough time for the industry. 2008, uh, Wizards of the Coast comes out with the fourth edition of D&D, &D, and uh, as a part of the process for, uh, for creating fourth edition, they brought licenses back in-house for Dungeon & Dragon magazine, which Paizo Publishing had had since uh, Lisa left the company around 2000. And so Paizo decided they were gonna try and convert their Dungeon & Dragon uh, subscription base to the base for a new RPG, and they created Pathfinder. So 2008 is kind of the birth of the, the, the big split between uh, the 3.0, 3.5, you might call Pathfinder 3.75, branch of the Dungeons and Dragons tree, and the fourth edition branch of the Dungeons and Dragons tree. Uh, and then 2012 is the year when Kickstarter hit in a big way. There had definitely been rumblings 2011. Luke and I were walking around uh, Gen Con 2011 talking about uh, a few games and how this Kickstarter thing might work and, uh, you know, was there, was there a business there? Could it be done? Um, yeah, 2012, it was pretty obvious it could be done, uh, especially after the Double Fine guys raised a couple million dollars for a video game. <laughs> Yeah, Kickstarter's been very good to me. I raised $1.4 million on Kickstarter, so I got nothing but good things to say about Kickstarter. Uh, but Kickstarter translated to a way for people who had ideas to do tabletop role-playing games to get them into print, whereas uh, they may have really struggled in some of the old systems and the old uh, processes. So Kickstarter was another kind of rebirth of creativity and an explosion of new people coming into the field. So it was pretty cool. Okay, so that's the history of RPGs in four decades. Uh, in, in 10 minutes, and now we're at 2014. So we have this great uh, leading question like, now what? Now we're gonna talk about what's happening today. Uh, and the first thing I wanna talk about is what's happening with the classics. So uh, 
there's a bunch of classic RPGs, and they've been around uh, in some cases for four decades. Uh, and these are games that just don't go away. They have an evergreen uh, following. There's people who love them and will buy some of them, uh, no matter uh, how long it has been since they may have actually played. Um, but they're they're great, and they have this huge legacy of of people who know how to play them and people who've written for them and, and, and have great histories. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Vampire here uh, because it's kind of the, it, it's the, it's the best match between like the classic games and who we've got on the panel. Um, so I want to actually turn this over to Shane real quick. Shane, could you talk a little bit about like what we did at CCP to kind of re-engage with the, with, the, um, with the World Darkness community? So, so CCP and White Wolf had a, a similar split, <clears throat> kind of like what uh, what Wizards and Paizo uh, had with D&D a few years later when they, they had rebooted the World of Darkness in 2004. Uh, and that, that created something of a, a split between the fans. And then about eight years had gone by, and what we had the idea of doing was uh, was basically making Vampire the Masquerade the 20th Anniversary Edition. So that basically reached back out to a lot of people that were, that were classic White Wolf fans. And that actually was kind of a big, huge shot in the arm for, for them um, and just sort of for that movement. Uh, around the same time, the actual 20th anniversary book was the last the last classic book published by White Wolf as a, an entity before they started licensing it out. So it, uh, and then Onyx Path, uh, Onyx Path Publishing, who Matt works with, um, you know, they basically kind of helped start Kickstarter as uh, tabletop books in kind of a big way. Uh, and then the license got split in half, and like I have a side company called Binance Studios that does uh, the mindset theater stuff. But that's um, kind of that's a lot of the stuff that we've you know, we've done. Yeah, so that's kind of led to where like White Wolf Publishing has essentially been split up, and it's it's pretty neat to watch watch all of the fans to bring that stuff back. So I know that like some of these products have been kickstarted. There's a Traveler Kickstarter, uh, and there was a Call of Cthulhu Kickstarter, uh, and I think that's great. Uh, I think that's a, a way that some of these classic games can directly re-engage with, um, with their audiences and, and kind of restart uh, their, their business. Um, I think that it's likely that these are the kind of games that will be with us forever. Like if we, if we had this panel 100 years from now, there would probably be a, a version of Hero that you could buy that, that would be playable, <laughs> um, or, or Shadowrun or Rifts, right? These, these games have kind of passed into legend and they're never going to go away. Um, and that's, that's one of the great things about this hobby. Uh, it's a little bit like baseball. Like we, we have a connection with people who started playing this game in the 70s. The people who are playing these games today are in a, in a continuum. We're in an unbroken chain uh, with people who were playing RPGs at the dawn of the, of the whole hobby you know, four decades ago. Uh, because these games, these classic games, are still around, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, okay, so uh, the next thing I want to talk about is impact of Kickstarter. We mentioned Kickstarter a bunch. Um, can you guys raise your hands? How many of you have backed uh, a Kickstarter? Yeah, that's what I thought. How many of you have backed an RPG Kickstarter? Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so... Uh, Can I ask a more questions? Yes, please do. Okay, how many of you have backed a Kickstarter for a game that was an out of print for more than 10 years to come back? Okay. All right, cool. How many of you guys have backed a video game Kickstarter? Cool. Oh, yeah. um, so I'm not going to explain what Kickstarter is. <laughs> <laughs> if you have questions, ask Luke later. He'll tell you. Um, uh, okay, so uh, I have three quick slides I'm going to run through, and then I'm going to loop Crane talk a little bit about Kickstarters. Uh, so I, I would say that looking at hobby gaming, tabletop role-playing gaming on Kickstarter, there's three categories. The first category is Kickstarter originals. These are games which uh, are primarily known for having launched on Kickstarter. They may have had an incarnation in some 
manner before they went to Kickstarter, but it was usually very small press and hardly anybody saw them. So Kickstarter was really their first big push out into the world. Um, uh, there's two games on here I really have to mention, which is Numenera and The Strange. Uh, these are games by Monty Cook, and uh, you know they raised a lot of money. So between those two games, he's raised almost a million dollars to do these you know brand new from scratch RPGs on Kickstarter, which is pretty amazing. Um, then my second category is uh, Kickstarter New Editions. Kickstarter New Editions is the idea of a, a pre-existing game that might have a pre-existing fan base that uh, the people who own that intellectual property went to Kickstarter to kind of reboot or restart or uh, just do in parallel something that they were already doing. Um, and there's been some great products. Fate, uh, the Fate core system, I should mention. Fred Hicks is kind of the mad genius behind Fate. Um, and he took a game which is based on Fudge, uh, which uh, has a, both a Creative Commons license and an open gaming license, and turned it into this like runaway success on Kickstarter through just crazy amounts of, like, I'm just going to work really hard on Kickstarter. Yeah, Fred's the master of just working really hard on it. Um, look, there's some classic games here. Call of Cthulhu, Space 1889, Earthbond, uh, Mutant Chronicles, Traveler. Uh, Kickstarter is the place where some of those classic games are, are getting their, their, their injection of money they need to keep running, so it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and then the last thing I just want to mention is this Onyx Path Legacy of White Wolf thing. So uh, CCP really wants to be in the, CCP is the company that owns White Wolf, and CCP really wants to be in the business of electrons, not molecules. They want to be doing video games. Uh, and so uh, they've decided they're going to license the White Wolf uh, intellectual property out uh, primarily to Onyx Path, but also uh, through the... Um, uh, the stuff that Shane is doing for, for live action role playing. So um, the, the legacy of the old uh, World of Darkness tabletop RPG products is alive and well today, and they're kickstarting them. There's actually 11 products. I only had room for 10 on this slide. There's a one more uh, Obsidian Path product. Um, but if you look at the uh, if you look at the revenue that these games generated, it's like three million dollars on this on this page. Um, it's a pretty amazing thing that uh, you know that all these White Wolf fans kind of found Kickstarter and have embraced it as a platform to, to, to keep funding. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. One of the things that Kickstarter has allowed us to do is uh, the fracturing of the, the World of Darkness fan base that Shane had mentioned. Um, Kickstarter has allowed us to actually support both audiences. Uh, so if you look here, there's new and classic World of Darkness games. Right. That's uh, one of the great things about Kickstarter has allowed us to do is see which books how much demand fans have Yeah. So, uh, Luke Crane, not only are you a, a, a Kickstarter employee, but you're also an RPG publisher. Yep. Can you talk about what it's like to run uh, one of these RPG products through Kickstarter? Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, oh, no. So, uh, I, I have a, a, an anecdote, though. A, a funny anecdote, I hope. So, day one uh, at Kickstarter, I sit down with my boss, and I say, so, maybe this was week one. Maybe, maybe I wasn't so presumptuous day one. <laughs> So I say so, and I give her a meaningful look in the eye, and she says yes. So I said, scheduled a meeting, and I say so, RPG category, it's time, I'm here. And uh, she says, no. Uh, <laughs> and I say, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, but uh, I did, we have these really flaky, weird tags uh, and uh, on Kickstarter that are useful to people that like cats. Uh, I, um, I also, I said, okay, well, can we change the name of board and card games to tabletop games so that it includes things like RPGs? And can we get an RPG tag on Kickstarter? So it's, in fact, the only game type that you can sort by on Kickstarter is RPG because there is a brilliant community of people, creators and people who back them, who have adopted Kickstarter uh, as this way of getting these games out. And it's so much fun to watch uh, because on one side of it, you have uh, people like White Wolf saying, 
uh, what do you guys think about a 20th anniversary? Anybody? And people are like, <laughs> and then you get people that are like, you know, I made some cool OSR character sheets. Uh, right. Can I make a, I want to make a pad of these and I'll give everybody a pad. And you know, like a $500 project. And people are like, ooh. You know, they make like $510. It's like, it's awesome. Uh, so I, I had the dumb, terrible idea to, uh, I, I was like, six months into my job, I'm settled. I'll run a Kickstarter for my new game. It's great. I'll learn about the platform. It was not a smart idea. It was, it's like working three jobs at once. Designing the game, running the Kickstarter project, and then working the Kickstarter. So it's really intense, but uh, you know, we remember the dawn of, of time before Kickstarter when you do things like pre-orders. And, and I, I feel like we would do our pre-orders in kind of like the cold Arctic waste, like yeah. Station Z. Um, because now when you, know, when you do these projects, you're so much more visible and, and there's so much more like cross um, participation from all different uh, aspects of the community. It's not just my fans coming to back the Kickstarter project. Like within you know, a, an hour or two, I could see names coming up in our backer list that I had no idea who these people were, and I had no idea where they were coming from, and it's great. Uh, the, the, the whole community uh, has really adopted the platform. It's, it's uh, excellent to see. What, what was the name of that game? Oh, Torchbearer. Torchbearer. Yeah. yeah. So, on my chance. Second from the right, left on the bottom. Check it out, it's a good game, I bought it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanna say, um, you touched, touched a little bit on it, like the whole difference between the old system of kind of three-tier distribution and, and you, you would ask for pre-orders and you'd get like 100, right? Yeah. You get some really, really small number. Well, we talked about this before. It, it's interesting, so we're out of our little silos, our little like internet wasteland silos off our websites into this kind of giant central community, which is amazing. But if you look at this in the terms of like real publishing numbers, which RPGs have never been involved in real publishing numbers, but if you do, like, you know, the wildly successful Onyx Pass stuff, 5,000 backers, or, or you know, uh, maybe 10,000 backers or something, that's a tiny amount of, of orders for a real book, yeah. uh, or a real game. Uh, so it's, we're still out in the hinterlands in a way, but we're all together now. <laughs> you, in, in, the, in, the, in the kind of pre-Kickstarter days, when you self-publish an RPG, you had to take a lot of risk up front in the dark, right? Yeah. You, you had to say, well, I'm going to print like 2,000 copies of this book. I have pre-orders for 200 units. I'm on the hook for 1,800 copies if this thing doesn't sell. Yeah. And Kickstarter gives you a lot of visibility. You have some sense of how many you should make, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We went from uh, promising to make 1,000 to making 4,000 units of our game. Yeah. yeah. And the distributors didn't pay you for those orders in the old day until 60 days after you ship them the product. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and now money up front to pay the printer, yeah. pay artists, everybody's happy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of overstate the, the positive business impacts of getting paid before you print and having a sense of how much to make. Oh yeah. Yeah, Huge. it's really hard. Uh, which is the reason these games are proliferating in Kickstarter so much, because it's such a great marriage well, platform in the world. It's really created more like a real partnership between the people who make games and the people who want games. It's versus a traditional publishing, us, you, it's kind of like all of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it lowers the risk. I mean, risk, creative risk. I'm not talking about financial risk. Like, if I want to make a really off-the-wall RPG, I can give it a shot on Kickstarter, and the world will tell me if there's not 100 people that want to play it. Right. <laughs> I do not want a game about being the origami master. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 that'd be awesome, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. You, uh, just turn it mic on this thing. Kickstarter is also a massive um, marketing and just reach of most of the, the games on here, we've continued to sell vast numbers of them after they've been released right. in the general market, both on direct RPG and through stores. Um, 
so just the excitement of the, the people that were involved with the Kickstarter and then getting their friends right. to go and buy. Right. Okay, so uh, turning away from Kickstarter. So um, I've been working on this presentation for about a week and a half or so, kind of sending it around to these guys to get their feedback. And I got some great feedback from Luke Crane and some great feedback from, from, uh, from Matt about this kind of thing in the middle, which is a game that's not a classic game and a game that's not a game that had to be kickstarted and a game that's not uh, Dungeons & Dragons or, or Pathfinder. Um, and so, like, congratulations, you're at the birth of a new term. I'm trying to create this whole new thing in hobby gaming the modern mid-market RPG. <laughs> so this is a game that's published after 2000, and we're, we're guesstimating that it has sales at least to 10,000 units or more. Um, and this is kind of a, a not a catch-all category, but it's a category of games that have probably less things in common with each other than they do with the bucket I just put them in. So they're not really connected by genre or by brand or by the history of the publishing companies. They're kind of connected by the fact that they were released after 2000 and they sold about 10,000 copies or more. <laughs> Um, I'm going to talk about the problems of data and unit volume and all that stuff in one of the next sections. So just uh, take it as read that, man, it's hard to figure out what anybody sells in this market. Okay, so uh, modern mid-market RPGs. Um, th these, are, these are games that would have been successful in the 90s, would have been successful in the 80s, would have been successful in the 70s. Anybody who was publishing one of these games would have, would have, would have been identified by anybody in those eras of, of, as a success. Okay, so we've got like Hackmaster from Kenzer and Company, uh, Edge of the Empire, which is the Star Wars uh, RPG from Fantasy Flight, um, Firefly, which is a new game from Margaret Weiss Productions, Burning Wheel, which uh, Luke publishes, and I'm I'm using the Burning Wheel here to stand in for Mouse Guard and all the other things that he publishes using the Burning Wheel system. Savage Worlds, which is a, a multi-genre uh, uh, core game toolkit that uh, that Shane Hensley made at Pinnacle. Uh, Exalted, which is uh, in, pre in print now through a, a Kickstarter. Uh, Mutants and Masterminds, which is one of the first D20 RPG uh, products to come out of Green Ronin, and it's still really successful. Uh, and then Rogue Trader. So uh, Rogue Trader is a stand-in for a whole bunch of games that, uh, that Games Workshop uh, originally made, and then now Fantasy Flight has kind of taken over. Um, so uh, these, these are really high-quality production games. Uh, they're usually pretty thick and meaty and, and pretty cool to look at. Uh, and they sell really well. Um, and I thought, uh, do you want to take a shot, Derek? Just talk a little bit about like selling the mid-market, modern mid-market RPGs. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff, um, it's hard to determine when something releases whether it's going to be a flash in the pan or it's going to be something that lasts. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a science to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, a game like that's very popular for us right now is uh, like Fate and Fiasco. I don't know if you put them in that market or not, but like they're, they're like doing really well for our two locations. Um, a couple of years ago, you guys might remember, uh, Margaret Weiss had the, the superhero game that came out. It was like hugely popular. Did great. I, I couldn't have had enough of it in the booth. We just kept selling and selling it. Did great at both stores. It's gone. You know, so yeah. it's, it's hard to sort of like figure what's gonna you know, have that duration and what won't. Yeah, it, it struck me as I was going through this list. Some of these games are kind of evergreen, like the Hackmaster games, and some of them might have like a two or three year peak and then. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we look back, you know, before I did the panel, I kind of like went back and just looked at some of the numbers. And, and 2006 was like an incredible year for us at the store. We had we had one store then, and you know, sales were like they're less than half of what they now they're less than half of what they were then. Yeah, um, which is interesting, and I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why that why that's true. And there's been a few spikes, you know, like certain months or you know something would release, and um, you know, fourth edition when it first released, was huge. Everyone was excited, they want to play it, and then you know, rapidly like you know. 
we all know there's like you know, a, a pretty contentious opinion out there about yeah. the reasons why it failed and, and that sort of thing. World of Warcraft also you know had a had a direct impact on the, on the store when it was big. Yeah. 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 Nothing quite like some of the others that we drive here. Yeah, it's number one day in the store. Significant uh, others. A guy who's been there every single day, waiting for the store to open every day. Okay. Significant other. It's all over. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I was confused because I was thinking significant others. I don't think I've played that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. That's so, very true. So I, I have a, I have a, also a funny anecdote about this. So 2006-ish, I think, I was sitting with uh, Mike Morales. I don't know if you know that guy. It's a big deal. We were at a, a small convention in Long Island, I think, and uh, he was looking at the new edition of my game, and he said, this looks really good. He was being really nice, and, you know. We try to be nice to each other when we talk to each other in person. As opposed to online. Yeah, online. And he said, you know, and he kind of, you know, we have, when we're in private, we talk numbers. Um, and he said, well, how many, you know, how many are you I said, oh, we moved about 5,000. And he said, you know, I consider that a success. Like, based on his experience working at Malhavik Press, he said, any title that we can move 5,000 of, that's a success. And I went, yeah. <laughs> I'm in. But so, then, then there was Ken Hyde kind of emerged in me uh, and, and started to, uh, he, as he does, he kind of like comes out and talks to me. And I was thinking that, so I designed my stuff, or I started designing stuff when I was young and dumb in the, uh, in the 90s. And had I actually managed to get it out before the crash, I probably would have sold 10 times that much. Uh, before, you know, and I thought about that too. As he said, five thousand, yay! And I'm like, I worked so hard this I sell five thousand. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's just that there's there's a weird shift, and I'm really happy with you know my games and what we've done. But uh, it's a it's a weird new world out here. Yeah. That's that's actually a great segue to my next topic, which is bestseller. And uh, I'm I'm going to tell you right now that we're going to take these numbers for the green side. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, everybody in this panel likes each other, and we tend to go to shows and uh, hang on in bars, and we'll talk business with one another kind of off the record all the time. So there's this kind of flow of data that kind of goes through the industry, but it's impossible to say how much of it is real and how much of it is fake. And you know, I like to believe that most people I talk to tell me real things, but it's obvious that they're not all being completely honest. Um, the industry doesn't have a good mechanism for tracking sales. Unlike books or music, we don't have a something scanned. We don't have book scan or music scan. There's no data being recorded at point of sale uh, in the retail level that tells us how many copies of any given book are being sold. Um, and we were just talking before the panel, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, it would be relatively easy to kind of put a product into a bucket, right? We sold this in the retail, hobby game retail bucket. We sold this in the bookstore bucket. We Maybe we sold this on the Amazon bucket, right? That, that is just over. Now stuff is being sold all over the place. It's being sold through a million different websites. It's being sold in a bunch of different formats, in PDF, in print-on-demand, in you know, print-ahead and ship it to a, to a, to a reseller. Um, so the visibility on what, what constitutes a sale or how many units of anything have been sold, air quotes, are, they're getting worse than they've ever been. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to have a panel in front of 300 people. I want to talk about some real numbers. The most visible numbers that we have are numbers that are published by a, a company called ICV2, um, which is an acronym that stands for Internal Correspondence Version 2, uh, run by a guy named Milton Greet, who used to own Capital City Distribution and uh, was one of the two big comic book publishers, uh, and has been in and around the publishing industry for, for decades. Um, and 
this data is uh, based on a survey. They call a certain number of retailers and they ask them, what are your top five selling role-playing game products in any given month? There's no numbers. So the data is not presented to us. It doesn't say, you know, uh, Ryan's awesome fantasy RPG sold 200,000 copies. Uh, Luke's origami game sold, uh, you know, five copies. Um, it, 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 it's just a ranking, okay? So I took this data back to 2008, I think. I can see my own numbers. Yeah, 2008. Uh, and I just plotted it. So you can see, like, what the number one, number two, number three, number four, number five games were. And I know there's, like, too many colors of the same. It's hard to tell. There's just some trends. So uh, the, the orange thing uh, in second place and then in first place, that's the Pathfinder Tabletop RPG. The blue number that starts at number one and then kind of goes down over time, that's fourth edition, or Dungeons and Dragons in general. Um, the, the red uh, V-shaped thing near the, uh, the end of the left-hand side, that's the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games. Um, so, I mean, some of those games that we, we talked about as being kind of the mid-market, uh, you know, modern mid-market games, they're on this list. Some of the games uh, that, uh, that are uh, coming out of Kickstarter are on this list. Uh, you know, Fate is on this list, Exalted is on this list. Um, and then, you know, we've got the, kind of this classic uh, duel between Pathfinder and D&D. &D. Um, I wish I could stand up here today and say, like, you know, a, any given game you ask me and I can tell you how much it sells. I've, sells, I have no idea. It's impossible to tell. Um, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you that most of the games on this chart uh, with the exception of Pathfinder and D&D, they're probably not selling more than 20,000 units uh, of, of whatever their core product is, um, and some of them are probably selling less than 10. Uh, it's hard to say, especially with the games that might have a lot of, of supplements and add-on products, what the total volume is for any one of these games. And ICD2, they lumps them all into one category, so every sale of Mutants and Masterminds is in, in that one line, not just the core book. But here's the thing I want you to see. Um, you know, some of these games are the classic games. They're the games that we've seen, you know, for, for four decades. And some of these games are, are relatively brand new games that no one's ever seen before. Um, and they, they change. So the thing that was really interesting to me is that if we had looked at this data from the 90s, uh, and I have data that's kind of similar to this that was collected by a, an out-of-print magazine called Comics and Games Retailer. And if you just looked at the top five games from like 1990 to 1995, they were essentially the same five games every month, month after month after month. It was very, very predictable. The frothiness, the, the rate at which these games change and appear on these lists and go away uh, is new. Um, and certainly the fact that D&D is not the number one game on this list is ethically new. That has never happened in four decades. So there, there are some weird things going on in this market. Um, we don't have the quantitative data. I can't put a number on it. But we have this kind of qualitative sense that there has been a change, that it's easier to get success, but it's harder to keep that success. Well, I think what's interesting about this, this graph, if you were to take the word sales off, I can't see the graph, but yeah. sales rank, there's actually, if you were to instead say, well, who's releasing the most supplements, this actually maps almost perfectly to that measure. Yeah. And I think the big change we're seeing is in the 90s, there was sort of an expected tempo of, for, for tabletop role-playing game, you expected every month if you played Mage or Werewolf or D&D &D or some flavor of D&D settings, every month there was a new book. And what we're seeing now is that's no, really, no longer the case for a wide variety of reasons. But really, outside of very, I mean, I think there's only like one or two companies that are still able to do that, we're not seeing the book a month publishing pattern that we saw 10 years ago. And, and I think that's one of the real big disruptions where, you know, and, and there's a lot of questions of, is that yeah. a good thing for the industry? Is it a bad thing for the industry? And what does it actually mean for the, like, for the ongoing tabletop hobby? Yeah. 
But I think you know, one of the things you mentioned to me before the panel too, Mike, was that this is this is really myopic because it's really only talking about retail sales. It's not capturing book trade. It's not capturing online. Uh, it's not capturing Kickstarter. Um, it's it's a really myopic slice of the data. Like that's why I have this giant grain of salt yeah. image. So I'm going to jump back to Kickstarter for a second. One of the side effects of Kickstarter, uh, if you would have had a big hit back in the day, fastest, let's say, you end up starting a whole company that does nothing but support that one product. Kickstarter hasn't really started companies like that. Kickstarter starts a, a guy or a small team who want to make one product, and then they want to make a different product, so they don't have that every month kind of thing. And this is true across the entire Kickstarter uh, genre. So you don't see a games workshop popping up. You see a cool mini or not popping up that makes one wholly new game every three months, not expansion, expansion, expansion. And the same thing is probably happening through Roleplay. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, here's our last topic, uh, which I suspect a fairly significant <laughs> number of people in this room would like to hear Mike talk about. Yeah. Uh, can I ask uh, how many people in the room have played uh, Dungeons & Dragons, not Pathfinder, but Dungeons & Dragons, in the past month? <laughs> okay. Uh, how many of you have played Pathfinder in the last month? Okay, so about the same ratio. All right, that's interesting. Okay, so... Uh, uh, origami. Yeah. yeah, the origami game. No, <laughs> Wait, actually, I want to ask another question. How many, how many of you have not played a tabletop role-playing game in the past month? Have you all played the... Oh, no, okay, that's... Some hands. Don't be afraid, Bill. Don't okay. be ashamed. I'm not going to kick you out, Andy. I'm just curious. All right, so uh, now I'm going to... Here's my giant disclaimer. Uh, I do not work for Pfizer Publishing. I'm not a member of the Pfizer Publishing staff, and I'm not here to represent Pathfinder. I'm just moderating this panel. So Mike is now going to debate an empty chair. <laughs> uh, so here's my first slide. And... Uh, Prior to this panel, I sent the, the slides around everybody, and I said, uh, hey, Mike, this is kind of how I see like the next three years of life in the, at the top of the chart. Two big, muscular sluggers are going to duke it out. And when that's done, one of those guys is going to be laying on the mat. <laughs> and Mike said, I don't really see it that way. So, Mike, why don't you say what you told me about your theory? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, about the change in how we look at the ongoing support for D&D, and how I think this is actually interacting with tabletop games in general. So I kind of have a theory I developed, I call it the Car Wars Theory. Whoa. So yeah, it's like, it was getting <laughs> yeah. deep, right? So back in 1987, when I was 12, uh, I bought Car Wars. It was like the game I bought that month, and it had a vehicle design system. And I spent hours and hours and hours building new Car Wars vehicles and drawing maps, and just playing with all the things around the game but very rarely able to actually play the game, because in order for me to play the game, I had to get my parents to drive into a friend's house and then get that friend to actually want to play Car Wars and then teach them all the rules and all that other stuff, right? And in addition to having Car Wars and D&D &D and all this stuff, I had my, my Nintendo and I had, I had my Apple II. And I bought new video games about the same rate. Maybe once a month, you know, if I did chores or if I had a little part-time job, I'd get maybe one new game a month. What has changed now is that a game like Car Wars can work very well if I'm not getting a new constant stream of, of games. Because I have all this time where I want to be gaming, but I can't play a game. So I'll do all the stuff that exists around the game. But now, thanks to like this phone, you know, I, uh, smartphones, tablets, Steam, uh, Xbox Live, uh, PSN, I can buy games whenever I want. I mean, I was at the airport yesterday and I was bored, so I bought 10, uh, 10 million for my iPhone and just started playing. Because I have other phone games on my phone, but I said, nah, I, I, I'm sick of the games I have, I'm just going to buy a new one. 
that, that would have been perfect time back in the 80s for me to like work on my D&D campaign or read you know, that month's D&D expansion or work on new uh, designs for, my, my, for Car Wars. But what's happening is we have so many new games coming in that the amount of time that one game can take up without actually having you play that game, like a World of Warcraft, where you can just log in and play. Or even things like the auction house. That's really, that's part of play, right? You're trying to, you know, you get resources, you're selling stuff for actual money that's helping you play the game. I believe that's what's really happening to tabletop role playing, is that it used to be a hobby of not playing the game you want to play. And there are so many games now that you can play to fill all those hours of gaming. You can actually game now. And that's what's happening is RPGs needed that time. We, we, a DM or a GM needed that time to create the adventure, create the campaign. A player needed that time to create a character, allocate skill ranks, and come up with a background, and come up, you know, write out your three-page essay on like who your character was before the campaign. That time is getting devoured. That time, basically, I think, is gone. That you could play stuff that lets you then eventually play a game, or you could just play a game. And people are just playing games now. And what we're really doing with D&D Next is we're really looking at thriving and surviving in that type of market. If you've play-tested the game, you've seen we've gotten much simpler with the mechanics. Things move much faster when you play. Like One of our very early things was to say, look, I was playing uh, Mass Effect 1 or 2 at the time. I could complete a, a mission in Mass Effect in about an hour and a half. And so why can't I complete an adventure in D&D in that time? Why does it take me 4, 8, 12 hours just to get from, you know, Page one, page one of the adventure to the end. I mean, yeah, you could have huge epic adventures, but I can't do it in less than four hours. You didn't want to have 20 minutes of fun back in four hours. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it's looking at the train and saying, look, things have changed. And tabletop role-playing, in a lot of ways, hasn't changed with the times. We've been doing the same thing the same way that we're doing back in the 80s. I mean, the game mechanics have been refined, but really until indie games, were, uh, uh, with the rise of indie games, no one had taken a look at the core essence of what makes a tabletop role-playing game tick and taken it apart and rebuilt it. And so for a lot of ways with D&D, you know, and you know, Ryan has the slide, that, that's really not the way we see it at all, because for me, that, that boxing match, it isn't D&D against any tabletop role-playing game. It's D&D versus the entire changing face of entertainment of how with the tabletop role-playing game, that's the best thing you can do with your friends. But what about when you're home alone, or when you're online, or when you're waiting in line at the airport and you just want something on your smartphone? The big question for, specifically for D&D is, if you're a D&D fan, what can we do to fill that time in a way that's engaging and fun for you? To take those settings and characters and worlds, you know, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, or whatever, and bring those to life for you in a way that we haven't been able to before. Because in the, in the past, it's always been, if we have a new setting, we have Eberron. Well, we're going to do the 300-page book, and it's going to be for the TRPG, and that's, that's where it's going to begin, and that's where it's going to end. All of our back catalog of settings. If we're not publishing those TRPG lines, are we doing anything with them? Well, probably not. That's it. All we do is the TRPG. And so for us, it's really been looking at entertainment, not just tabletop role-playing, but entertainment as a whole. Everything that people do now to engage themselves with stories and thinking... Where can D&D thrive within that terrain? And what we, can we do, starting with the tabletop role-playing game, to make it more accessible, to get that new generation of players in? And even the current generation who are strapped for time or have a million other options, what can we do to live within that environment? So, it's fantastic. Okay. Great summary. Thank you. <laughs> All right. uh, so uh, we're up against our time limit. We're, we're out of time today. Uh, so we'll have to go back to the future on a different occasion. Thank you all so much for coming to this panel. It was great to see a room full of people as interested about this topic as I am. And I'd like you to all give it up one more time for my awesome panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
forth, roll dice, and please don't get killed. <laughs> <laughs> happy to answer questions or anything uh, out in the hallway. This is the enforcer's center room. Oh, perfect. Like right on the side. 